and welcome to Reliving My Youth. My name is Noel Fogelman. My guest this week is Canadian Celtic singer Lorena McKenna. Now, Lorena bursted onto the scene back in 1991 with her fourth album, The Visit. It was four times platinum in her native Canada, it was gold in the States, but it was 1997's Book of Secrets that really put her in another stratosphere, featuring the hit song The Mummer's Dance. Now, The Mummer's Dance was 18 on the Billboard Hot 100s, it topped the adult alternative charts. The album itself, four times platinum in Canada, two times platinum in the States. We just talk about the legacy of The Mummer's Dance. I spoke to Lorena during her latest tour, so we kind of talk about touring post-COVID and just what she has to go through. Touring now, she's also her own manager, so I talk about with her how she juggles the creative side with the business side. She's still putting out tremendous music, and hopefully she'll tour in the States soon, and I hope you join my conversation with Lorena. So, Lorena, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's a great pleasure to be with you. Yeah, I know I got you in the middle of a tour right now. So how uh, how much fun is it being back on the road after, you know, two years dealing with the pandemic? It's pretty gratifying, you know, when you feel that. I think everybody probably feels or many people feel like they want to get back to doing what they do. And particularly if you if you love it and if you feel it's gratifying, which certainly playing the music uh, does. Um, uh, I've taken the all, the unusual uh, role of, of running my own career, so I don't have a manager. So a lot of my time is also spent in a non-artistic way just setting tours up so <laughs> right now how do you how do you balance that like the business side and then the creative side well it's come over time I it started when I first made my uh, first recording in 1985 and and I had to learn how to 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 produce things and uh, whether it was the recordings on cassette of course or small little tours first of all it was just myself um, you you learn slowly and organically, um, but I also learned in the nineties that I probably was unmanageable. <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up uh, continuing on to shoulder the, a lot of the responsibilities. So when it comes to recording, I set aside periods of time that I do research and travel and write and record. And then that little season of the artist is over. Then I go back and spend my days doing the management side. When we're touring, I've got to balance both of those things. Now, like, I know there's never really a good time to have a pandemic, but yeah. yeah, you know, with the technology that we had over the last two years, I'm sure it made it a lot easier for you, say, to like connect with your fans or even like make new music because of the technology we, we have out there now. Well, that might have been the case with other artists. That isn't how I spent my time during the pandemic. Again, um, uh, there were some other responsibilities that I I took advantage of this kind of window right. of time to get get some other things done, as well as I'm uh, I I live close to uh, the small city of Stratford, Ontario. Okay. Uh, my offices are in Stratford, where I'm speaking to you from now, and we were all involved in a high level civic um, event or controversy that surrounded. Uh, um, 
uh, a glass factory being proposed for uh, this area. So four months actually from about the middle of November to February of um, 2000, what was it, I guess 20 to 21, that I was heavily, heavily involved in that. Um, oh, doing environmental things uh, as well. Uh, we've we've supported initiatives to do with the First Nations Indigenous people here. Um, uh, so, and then we're building tours that we couldn't go on to do because we build them out about a year out, but we just didn't know where the pandemic was going to be. So we built tours and then we stood them down and built them and stood them down. So. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Hopefully we're at the end of all of that. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. And hopefully we learned a lot uh, as a result of the pandemic, because I know there are people like, because, you know, science is extremely important. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's mm -hmm. also, it changes every day. And a lot of people who are not, I don't want to go off and around here, who are not like pro-science don't realize that. And, yeah. you know, and, like we haven't had a pandemic like this in over a hundred years. So yeah. th things change and, you know, diseases change. And so it's like, if something yeah. changed from three months ago, people like, oh, well, three months ago, you said, you know, this, we can wear a mask or, or this can't wear a mask. But, you know, I wish people would just, you know, realize how uh, science and the environment are so important to, you know, to this world. Yeah. I mean, I from a performer standpoint and particularly for touring, you know, there are a lot of variables in involved in this uh, uh, virus. Um, and so from a from a touring standpoint, <laughs> I, I'm fond, well, I don't know how fond I am, but I'm saying that as a performer on a stage, when you're performing in front of hundreds, if not thousands of people, you feel like a sitting duck playing Russian roulette. And certainly in our tour that we did in October, our cellist actually came down with COVID halfway through the tour and she had to, she missed the whole right. uh, last half of it. But the other thing for me, uh, when we, when I think of our, our European tour that we were supposed to have done this coming March and I had to stand down, we can't get insurance for it, uh, for a tour. Most performers can't get COVID insurance. So if you come down with COVID, you're really, um, you could be in a very, very tight spot in the European tour that we stood down. Uh, I had, I would have to put up front close to half a million dollars wow. worth of, of commitment to trucks, right. buses and sound equipment, even before I stepped on the stage. So putting that kind of money up front. And then if yeah. I was to get COVID in the first week or two, yeah. it would be a financial hit that I wouldn't be able to take. So I, I try to share with folks that when they're wearing masks at performances um for particularly they're actually supporting and helping the artist continue right. touring and not be as vulnerable to these incredibly uh, huge financial risks because you can't most most artists don't have uh, benefits where you can just you know get paid for it's not like taking a week right. off from a regular job right um, so yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> I mean, because now we're coming, you know, into, into the winter months and, yes, you know, yes. I'm just like every virus that goes up in, in the winter. So, I mean, I'm not, you know, in favor of like mandates anymore, but just common sense that yeah, should always but... prevail. You know, if, if you mm -hmm. don't feel comfortable in a big group, just wear a mask, you know, and, like you, know, you shouldn't have to be an outcast now if you're wearing yeah. a mask. Because like two years yeah, ago, yeah. you were an outcast if you weren't wearing a mask. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it just, it's how it's flipped on, you know, uh, but for the music, because now obviously uh, you're touring or you were touring for the 
30th anniversary of the visit, mm-hmm. the, the, re- the visit the tour, and you had to, I guess, push that back a year because of the, the pandemic. Just, just talk about the legacy of that album, and it's just mm-hmm. how just beautiful. It, I mean, because every time I hear your voice, it always puts me in a good mood. And that <laughs> that album, you know, in, in particular as well. So just talk about the legacy of that album. It was, you know, it was my fourth recording, uh, but my first where I had partnered with the major record company, I signed a licensing deal with the Warner Music Group through Canada, and then it became available to all the other Warner territories. Um, So up to that point, just in terms of sales, I was selling maybe between 25 or 30,000 copies of my third recording, Parallel Dreams. Uh, that that you know put once the visit was related uh, released through the major label it just put that part of things in such a, a different territory but from a creative standpoint I was still um, trying to figure out whether people would like any of my uh, original writing I'd come from a, a deep interest in, in Celtic music and traditional music and I was a very uncertain I probably still am an uncertain Mm. composer but it was still a it was kind of an experimental territory uh stitching a bunch of things together as many of the recordings have ended up being as well um uh but um I'm just trying to think the let's say All Souls Night the each of these songs come from a different lineage of travel experiences um and studying rituals and festivals particularly to do with the celts Mm. and and around that time i learned that the celts were much more than this mad collection of anarchists from scotland ireland and wales but they were actually this vast collection of tribes that had uh, fanned out across europe and into asia minor and dated back to about 500 bc so that pan-Celtic history really gave me a um, a kind of springboard, and 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 I was already you know flirting with some of this. Let's see again with All Souls Night. It starts with the I think the tambora, uh, the East Indian instrument that comes in and.
very seminal recording for me, uh, certainly in North America and then in certain parts of Europe. I mean, the whole album is great, but I absolutely love Green Sleeves on, on that album. Um, yeah. Is there a background behind that song? Petticoat of sand 
Yes, it, it was part of an artist development uh, exercise I had done with Polygram. I think it was in eight, fall of 88. And they put up $10,000 for me to go into the studio and record four pieces, which I did. But I asked, when we were in the studio uh, and I was at the keyboard and the guitarist was in his spot and, and the engineer had to take a phone call. So uh, we were just noodling around and I said, I wonder how Tom Waits would do um, green sleeves. So we were kind of noodling in, in, in green sleeves in that vein and the engineer got off his telephone call and he's, he's you know, sounded through to the studio and said, well, that sounds interesting. Maybe I'll just record that for fun. Mm -hmm. So he 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 recorded, we, we went to the top, we recorded it just as it went down and sort of bagged it and didn't, didn't go back and work on it in any way. Um, so when it came down to, I, I was working on Parallel Dreams at that time and I felt that the piece didn't really belong in Parallel Dreams. Um, so I had it, in on the shelf as it were when we came around to the visit and thought well you know we'll, we'll throw it in here <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah how often does it happen where you kind of like shelf a song and you bring it back for like another recording well with me it, it it's happened a few times partially because i actually don't write nearly uh as much as i would like um and i really i mean I have a kind of vision sometimes for the recordings, but not every song will fit into that vision and it'll be left over. I know with Lost Souls, my last recording, I drew upon pieces that had been uh, developed uh, to a certain degree at other times. Yeah, well, I love Lost Souls. It's such a fantastic album. And oh, good. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really great. Now, when you um, like start writing, do you write for like say the harp like how do you you know no it, it, there is no set way for me um sometimes you know melodies will just come to me in my head I might be in an elevator um but usually I'll work on a piece uh on the piano I have more proficiency on the piano than I do in the harp mm -hmm. um but but if there are certain kinds of pieces that I know will end up having harp in them and our particular modality, I might start off with the harp. Um, but sometimes, you know, pieces start with just lyrics and phrases, and then uh, I'll go to the keyboard, whether it's piano or, or other kind of keyboard and work on them that way. I develop them to a certain stage, but then I actually have to have the whole array of musicians to explore the next layer of what the arrangement might be. Okay. Yeah. Now, do you like remember when you like, transition like from performing like you know traditional pieces 
and then like you learn to write your own music? Yes, I, I mean, in a way, my very first recording in 1985, Elemental, um, was was it was that kind of exercise. I had lived in Manitoba in Winnipeg for a few years, and I was part of a folk club, and a number of the members of that folk club um, came from Scotland and Ireland, and they shared their vinyl albums, and we listened to them, and I was pretty immersed in those years. Um, but when I moved to Stratford, Ontario, where I still continue to live, I worked at the Festival Theatre here, the Shakespearean Festival Theatre. So uh, that, and I was performing, I was singing and acting, but I was also a composer and performed some music live. So that theatre exposure um, certainly influenced the imagery in my mind. Um, but And when I think of those those pieces on elemental there certainly are some traditional pieces like Ben Claudi and she moved through the fair but I also brought forward I'd been invited to sing at the first Toronto International Authors Festival and um the director asked if I could set an Irish poem to music so I set the WBA's poems The Stolen Child to music so I, I was being nurtured and inspired to leave the traditional repertoire. And I also observed in that time that there were a number of artists who were uh, specializing that tra traditional repertoire and I felt that they would do it better than I could. So um, I started, you know, tinkering around and experimenting with my own uh, uh, compositions. So often, you know, to drawing on lyrics um, and, that the original, the music would be mine. And where do you draw most of like your inspiration, like for your songs? And like, does like a kind of movie or like a book or a poem, you know? Yeah, it's a process. It, it, you know, when I think from the visit then to Mask and Mirror, the Mask and Mirror, I was focusing on the history of the Celts that was more anchored out of the northwest corner of Spain. But you can't kind of uh, go into a corner of Spain without understanding the whole broader history of Spain, which involved, you know, the, the, uh, the Christian, Judaic and Muslim communities and Morocco. Uh, I traveled to Morocco and uh, and gathered inspiration there. Um, so the, the, the travels that they are are in a very important part of developing a kind of sensory um uh basket you know basket of sensory image imagery that i will draw upon when i'm writing um after the after the mask mirror i guess there was the book of secrets and i parked myself in in italy because there were some celts that were contemporaries of the etruscans um, so I was loosely inspired there. And then with um, an ancient muse, I moved further east to Greece and Turkey. I traveled to Mongolia and the northwest corner of China um, to see these mummies in Yurumchi uh, that had red hair and dated back to about 1000 BC and were felt to be the precursors of the Celts. So... Um, and, the, and I would read a lot of books, uh, history books or fictional books set in that time and gather different kinds of experiences and imagery. And so the, those themes would emerge out of that, that all that, that, that collective process. And you mentioned, um, I guess, the album that really like 
I wouldn't say put you on the map, but it kind of puts you on the map for a mainstream audience in like, especially America, because, you know, we're all self-involved in America here, you know, is the book of secrets. And, yeah. And that's actually celebrating an anniversary this year too. It's 25th anniversary. Yeah. Gosh. You know? <laughs> yeah. It, 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 we're all getting older. I know. Right. Exactly. Uh, and you know, the, the Mummer's dance, which obviously got, you know, mainstream here. Yeah. Um, what like, made so many people like connect to that song that wouldn't normally
you know, what is it about certain pieces? Um, I think of the great Leonard Cohen quote when somebody asked him, where, do, where does that come from? And he says, well, if I knew, I'd go there more often. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but I think there is something infectious in the in some of the older Celtic or, or modalities, these kind of where it's there are drones and there's fifths and there's fourths, but nothing as fancy and as contemporary as putting a bunch of thirds in there. Um, so I think there's a kind of modality that most people wouldn't understand, but speaks to a kind of primitive corner of their being. And it certainly struck me and it was part of what attracted me to the music in the first place. Um, I think the eclecticism of the arrangements, uh, I know that with, um, I mean, the, you know, I don't know how much the actual, uh, story of, it's hardly even a story. It's kind of a painting of these mummers running around the countryside dressed up and, and knocking on doors and playing mm -hmm. instruments, which they still do in Newfoundland. They still do in parts of Ireland. Um, but I think the roots of it may have come in, you know, earlier custom, Celtic customs in Europe. Um, uh, yeah, I, 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 I don't know beyond that. I know that um, there's research being done about, you know, certain rhythmic patterns and the impact they have. Uh, we actually had the that piece remixed by uh, these a couple of guys out of England, uh, whose name escapes me but they remixed it. So they made it a bit more radio friendly. Right. When you first heard that, like what was your response to it? Well, what was interesting is that when we were recording the Mummers Dance, we, it was, <laughs> I remember recording on the, the Book of Secrets and still in, while I was recording, I was still writing at other times of the day. And I remember this one part of the process where I'd built some other pieces and I asked, asked my assistant, Brian Hughes, to kind of do this, you know, rather rudimentary exercise with the engineer on these other pieces. And I was in the writing room in the back of the studio at Peter Gabriel's studio in, at Real World in England. And, and I was working on the mummer stance and I was feeling, oh gosh, this isn't, this isn't very good. And I, I invited Hugh Marr my fiddle player to come in and I played a bit for him and I said Hugh do you think I should even continue working on this and he says oh yeah no I think you should continue working <laughs> on it so 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 I did and but we ran out of time and we wrapped the recording up and by the time I finished building Mummer's Dance I realized how I would have wanted to build it if had I had more time and it would have been to bring in a bit more of the rhythmic direction that these guys from uh, Bath had done with the remix. Um, yeah, I, I'm not a very experienced producer. It takes me a long time to right. find things, but yeah. <laughs> but I, I, you know, it, it's always a danger that you stretch a piece so far beyond what it was originally intended, you, you that it turns people off. Okay. So that was always the risk of of feeling like it might work for a, a very radio friendly uh, uh, audience, but I didn't want to alienate my core constituency in the process. Right. Yeah. Now, like that took you like, obviously like to like 
late night shows and stuff like that, you know, in America, you know, appearance on David Letterman and like Yeah, other shows. Were you comfortable like performing on like those shows? yeah. <laughs> as much as one can be comfortable performing anywhere, frankly, because performing in front of thousands of people is not a natural act. <laughs> it's not a it's from an anthropological standpoint, it's not, you know, um, it's a more unnatural, contrived kind of thing. So I I, I mean I always get a bit nervous, you know. But um, you develop skills to manage all of that. But it was fun. I mean, it was fun going and doing David Letterman. <laughs> but how different is it like performing like for a concert that you know you that people are there to see you as opposed to someone's just you know got tickets to a particular like you know late night Yeah. shows like oh wow you're the you're the guest i mean Right. now i've heard of you do you change like maybe i'll try to sell like these people No, on the song and no, become new no, fans just no get same on performance and get up and do what I do. And those who like it, great. And those who don't, well, I won't be there very long. right <laughs> exactly four minutes <laughs> and you move on right yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah yeah now um do you remember like where you were the first time you heard like one of your songs on the radio No, I don't actually. I don't remember. No, I don't remember the first time. okay <laughs> yeah what about like the one like i'm sure you heard like the murmurs dance and like some interesting places or like just took you by surprise Yeah, I mean, I, I remember hearing that, I think this was it the Cincinnati Orchestra or Pops do a version of it. <laughs> I guess <laughs> it's, um, yeah. Yeah, that was, that was fun. That was right fun. yeah yeah so what made you become like a performer i mean, like because you have such an amazing voice when did you realize that you can make this your career Well, uh, I, I maintain that music chose me rather than me it. Uh, when I grew up, I always wanted to be a veterinarian. And if I couldn't be a veterinarian, I would have gone into wildlife conservation or forestry. And I, I still feel I have the internal disposition of a vet. Um, but but I uh, the performing opportunities continue to grow and evolve. And in a in a but even when I moved to Stratford here, I was still trying to explore my am I working in theater or musical theater or lounges or am I going to teach music or what it, what was it? Um, but it was that first act. I took the money that my parents had saved for my veterinarian studies or my university education and used that money for my first recording, which was a huge le leap of faith. It was $10,000, which for them was a lot of money. Right. They were not well, well off people. And um, to kind of, never have made a recording before and go and spend the whole thing making this recording recording and mixing it in one week then running off 30 cassettes and i gave 15 of them away and then i went bust at the saint lawrence market um in toronto off and on for you know a handful of years until i could do house concerts and then i could add a few more musicians so it was a very organic evolutionary process from 1985 to 1991 where uh, when I signed with the Warner Music Group then I I could I well actually by 89 I realized even without a major label I was actually uh, making a fair good living um, so it, it, there wasn't a single moment and it wasn't like oh I want I must have that It was like I was being led by something and I just kept following it. And I sort of still feel that way. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs>
Now, I'm sure like you, when you have like a big label kind of behind you, you have, you know, execs, exec, you know, give you, you know, pointers and, you know, notes and criticisms. Now, dealing with like the first couple of years of your career when it was all you, and you, it's difficult, right? You know, to kind of take those notes with a smile. and. Well, do- the thing is this, uh, that those years I developed the financial capacity to finance my own recordings and mm-hmm. finance my own tours. So when I signed the licensing deal with Warners, it wasn't an artist deal, which most okay. artists sign. Right. And and it's in that artist deal that they're really one more raw resource in the, in the creation and manufacture of a recording. This was much closer to a partnership. Okay. I never asked them for money to make the recordings, nor did I ask for tour support. So that allowed me to... Uh, I took all the financial risk. They had very little financial risk, but that also allowed me to um, negotiate a much stronger compensation per song or per recording. So it, it turned out very well. So then they, they, they could see three by the visit that I already had developed a fan base here in Canada. I was, I had made distribution arrangements with the small distributors and retail around the country without them. And I was making a good living. So they, they left me alone. They just said, yeah, you just carry on, (laughs) carry on girl, just do what you're doing. Right. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You have any plans to come down to the States to tour? Yes. We're definitely looking at that for, for perhaps for next fall. Okay. Um, that uh, yes, we're missing coming between the pandemic. I guess we were there in, I think fall of, well, we were there in the fall of 2016. Is it 16? Yep. The year of the election. Right. <laughs> Hamilton on, on that election night. And um then I think we were there. We were there in 18, 2018, I can't remember. Maybe not. Hmm. But it seems like a long time. That's yeah, it does. It certainly does. <laughs> a lifetime ago, yeah. We, we love coming down into the States. We really do. People yeah. are so lovely. They're so generous. Yeah, really. we, we, yeah well, we definitely miss you. We, we can't wait oh, to okay. have you back. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> I really appreciate your time. Uh, best, luck, best of luck yeah. continuing with the tour. Thank you. um, Hopefully we'll see you next fall. Yes. All right. Take care. And a special thanks to Lorena for joining me today. You can follow her on Twitter at Lorena. Her website is LorenaMcKinnon.com. And if you have a guest suggestion, you can hit me up on Twitter at the first all one nine or like the page Louie My Youth on Facebook. You can go to iTunes, check out all the past episodes you've had. While you're there, please rate and review the show. Don't have iTunes? Not a problem. Show can be found on SoundCloud, Spotify, Podbean, Amazon Music, basically wherever you can find a podcast. New episode comes there every week. Stay safe, everybody. We'll see you then. <laughs>